In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll continue with the new hymn of the month. Uh, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. So. <laughs> stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ mine man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. Proofs I see sufficient of it, tis the true and faithful word. Tell me he who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would intervene to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Is thus word the Lord's anointed, Son of man and Son of God. Here we have a firm foundation, here the refuge of the lost. Christ the rock of our salvation, the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded, who on them their hope have filled. All right, we're going to continue with the uh, catechism memory work. What is the sixth commandment? You shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do. Husband and wife, 
love and honor each other. In the Bible memory work, Jesus said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. Matthew 19, 5 to 6. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. In Luther's morning prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, uh, kids can go off to Sunday school. Matthias, Esther, go to Sunday school. Lydia, can you go let Rebecca know that they're going down there? Thank you. All right. So uh, we'll take a look at this hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. Um, you know, I it's not printed out on the sheet here, and I'm not exactly sure. I think it was – I think it's an English hymn. Um, let me take a look here. Yeah, Thomas Kelly, uh, 1769 to 1855. So uh, probably written in the in the 19th century, in the 1800s. Uh, but it's uh, put to a German tune. Uh, oh mein Jesu, ich muss sterben. Um, so it's also written in eight. Uh, that tune was written in 1850. So it's uh possible the text and tune have always gone together. Anyhow, um, so it's an English hymn. So sometimes we've talked about like German hymns and our hymnal being translated in English and what that looks like. But this one was written uh, directly in English. And you get this uh, famous phrase from Isaiah. I was going to look up the exact uh, verse numbers for you. Uh, But from the servant songs in Isaiah, I believe, 53 is, yeah, um, there we go, yeah, Isaiah 53, verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, so this is Isaiah's great prophecy of Good Friday in the in the servant songs. The servant, of course, is Jesus Christ. And 
Um, that's why I picked it is for the hymn of the month and to do on Wednesday nights this month because on Wednesday nights we're, we're looking at the book of Isaiah. We're going through the entire book of Isaiah. Um, sorry about the distraction. Um, they're just in a mood today. If you haven't already picked up a um, or looked at downloaded it off the email, the February met or the not the February February's over, uh, the March the March Messenger um, included in the in there is a reading plan for Isaiah, and uh, we're a couple days behind now. If you if you just pick it up today, but that's okay um, because the first so many days are one chapter a day, and then it switches to two chapters a day. So if you just um, do a couple chapters a day. You can easily catch up on the on the reading plan. But um, Isaiah is just such a great book for for Lent. Um, it was kind of a challenge. I was thinking, man, I, I really want to do Isaiah for Lent, but to preach through the entire book, I can't do what I've done before with the shorter books when I've preached through books during Advent and Lent, where we literally read the entire thing throughout the Wednesday night services. Um, so we had to select some portions, but I do encourage you to read, read through the whole thing on your own time. And um, but Isaiah, needless to say, has has so many of these just beautiful images of Christ and beautiful passages there, and this is one of them. Uh, and Isaiah, all of Isaiah 53 is really beautiful. Uh, so surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and inflicted. He was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And I can, it's hard not to keep going um, just because there are so many beautiful lines there. But what I'm driving at here is when you he- read this passage and you sing this hymn, so stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Uh, and I'll point out a few other things here in a minute, but. This is a great hymn, and that passage in Isaiah is a great passage uh, to talk about something that we, as Lutherans, we just love to talk about a lot, which is the atonement. And atonement has a number of different ways to talk about about what it is and, and everything. I always like to start... With since it's an English word, it's pretty easy to kind of uh, break apart here. It's the at-one-ment with God. Um, how do we become at one with God again? Right. The nature of sin is that it has separated us from God. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, and the uh, to atone for something is to become at one again. Um, and for Christ to atone for our sin so that we can become at one with God again 
it took him to it took him to this place of being stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, and dying on the tree. Um, and you heard it in that Isaiah passage, and you can uh, see it here, is that why is Christ the one being afflicted? And what is he being stricken by, and what is he smitten for? Well, he is being stricken by God's wrath, right? Uh, so if you want, so I like um, verse 3, stanza 3. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. So you can see what it takes to deal with sin by looking at the passion. You can see what it takes to deal with sin by looking at the cross. That to deal with sin, someone must bear God's wrath. And so Christ, the the atonement, oftentimes we will call this the substitutionary atonement. The substitutionary atonement, because Christ becomes our substitute. He takes on our sin. And not just our, he doesn't just take on the sin itself, but he takes on the punishment for the sin. So, so God's wrath must be carried out against sin, right? Um, and th- this idea of God's wrath being carried out uh, is very important to the gospel. If, because if God is not just, right, if God does not carry out wrath against the thing which he hates, sin, God, God created the world to work in a certain way. God made the universe and everything in it. He created the heavens and the earth, and he designed it, right? And in that design, he created things to work a certain way according to his will. And to go against that will is sinful. To go against that will is something that he hates, right? It goes against creation. If he doesn't punish that, then how can he truly be God, right? If he if he would be going against his own will to not have wrath against sin. And if he doesn't have wrath against sin, then what are we even doing here? Right? If he doesn't if there's not a punishment for sinfulness, then what are we being saved from when it comes to the gospel, right? And you can see this uh, in churches that they try and get rid of God's wrath because it's an offensive doctrine to people outside the church. And they say, oh, well, everyone's going to go to heaven. We're just here because we care about um, like loving everyone and being nice to everyone. And uh, we care about things like social justice and, uh, you know, taking care of climate change or something. I mean, uh, this is what churches that get rid of God's wrath naturally, the path they naturally go down. And then eventually they lose members because you don't need to go to church for any of that. You can just get that on MSNBC or whatever. And yeah, yeah, wherever. Yeah, it it doesn't matter. And yeah. then those churches close, right? 
If you get rid of God's wrath, there's, there's no need for church. There's no need for the gospel. There's no need for preaching. Um, it, it becomes basically motivational speaking at that point, right? That there's, there's really no, no point in it. So God's wrath, and you can see this in this hymn, God's wrath is carried out against sin. If you want to know what the nature of sin is, look at the cross. Look at God's own son, stricken, smitten, afflicted, dying on the tree. That's the nature of sin. And um, yeah, the, the way this hymn goes about it, it's just, it's just wonderful. The uh, emphasis he starts with is that this is the long expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord, which he's going to repeat in another way. Um, in the third stanza, son of man and son of God, pointing out that Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man. And that is the way that the substitutionary atonement works is that all man was condemned by sin. All man inherited the nature of Adam. And so to have someone substitute for you, they can't be like you, right? They have to be different than you. Um, they, they have to, if, if you want uh, someone to give you uh, their righteousness, they can't be sinful themselves. Right? You can't trade places with someone uh, that is the exact same with you and expect a different result. So God had to send his son, the perfect man, Jesus Christ, who had no nature of sin, uh, who was not corrupt by sin. And, and he took our place. Um, how, however um, unfair that was, uh, God did it so, because he loved us. And, and had favor on us. And so we see then um, Christ on the tree, pierced for, and then over and over again, this hymn is, is wonderful in pointing this out, pierced for our transgressions. Um, he's the sacrifice appointed. He bears the awful load. And yeah, the, the hymn is also really good at just pointing out the the seriousness of of what's happening. Um, you hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Uh, friends through fear, his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would intervene to save. Uh, but the, and I love this line, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave, right? The, the biggest suffering of the cross is not the physical suffering. I mean, other people have been crucified in history. The suffering of the cross is that he is bearing the awful load, as the hymn says, and that God's entire wrath against sin is carried out on him in that moment, um, which is something unimaginable to us. Okay, so anyway, um, th this is a great hymn to focus on during Lent um, because during Lent, our eyes are drawn toward the cross, right? Um, the Son of Man is lifted up so that we would be drawn, that he could draw all, all people to himself. And uh, it, you know, it, do, it doesn't sound nice, right? It doesn't sound nice to talk about God's wrath against sin. It doesn't sound nice to have to talk about, oh, this is a time of repentance of our sins. It doesn't sound nice to talk about a man being pierced and wounded on a tree. But remember what Paul says, too, that the 
God does not work how, how man works, right? The word of the cross, the, this word, the word of stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree, that word is uh, foolishness to Gentiles, right? So um, your average like person outside the church, let's say, um, which is how Paul's using the word Gentiles there, your average pagan, they think it just doesn't make any sense. That's that's silly, right? Why would, why, why, and why is that silly? Because what do they think of? They think of if if you're gonna, if something's gonna be great, if something's gonna be the basis of everything that you believe, it's got to be something glorious, right? Something, uh, you know, like a, a a soldier or a king, you know, in in glorious victory. And there is an aspect to where Christ is that, but. That's not what the cross looks like, right? The cross looks like losing. It looks like defeat. Um, and he says it's folly to the to the Jews um, because the Jews don't recognize him as the Messiah, and they're expecting something something else. So uh, he says the word of the cross doesn't make any sense to anyone except for those who have faith. And when you have faith, you can see what it is. And you can see the victory that Jesus does have in his resurrection. And you can see um, that the cross is is everything to us. It's our salvation. And so Lent is really a time of this refocusing on what's important, right? Um, we're, we're giving up things. We're fasting from earthly things uh, so that we'd focus on Christ. And we are, all our readings and our hymns, we're, we're trying to draw ourselves closer and closer to that cross, put our eyes on on Jesus. That's So at the, the first Sunday of last Sunday, at the end of the service, we sang, Jesus, I will ponder now, which is a great um, hymn as well, talking about the cross. Jesus, I will ponder now on your holy passion, that this is the season where we're going to take time to ponder what it means that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, right? Because we say that all year round, right? Oh, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Okay, great. Let's Let's look at that. Like, what does that mean, right? Um, this is this is also, by the way, I'll I'll be done with this in a second. This is why I think crucifixes are are really great, um, and we can talk about reasons why people don't like crucifixes, why some people say that's too Catholic, whatever. Um, but but crucifixes are great because. It's we're not we're not worshiping the piece of wood, right? We're not worshiping an idol. We're not. It's um, it's not about the fact that there's a piece of wood there, in a certain shape, cut into a certain uh, design. It's because looking at that image reminds us of what Jesus did for us, right? It, it points. It, we don't actually think Jesus is like present in the crucifix, right? But when we see that cross go by and when we look at a man hanging on a tree, we remember the seriousness of it. More than looking at an empty cross, right? I mean, um, there's nothing wrong with empty crosses and they can certainly remind us of the death of Jesus, but not not in the way that a cross with a corpus on it can, right? It's, just, it's something different there. And I, it's, I think it's telling that... Um, that oftentimes, especially not really Lutherans, but um, you know, like American evangelicals say, you shouldn't have a crucifix. That's too Catholic. Uh, 
well, what's really, what are you really offended about? You know, some, uh, sometimes I wonder if it's not, it's not the fact that Roman Catholics use crucifixes, if it's the fact that it's too stark, right? Um, so anyway, that's just a, that's just a theory. I mean, I'm sure it depends on the person and the situation, but, but I do wonder about that. Uh, why, why are some people kind of repulsed by the idea? And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, the empty cross is about the resurrection. And I'm like, well, why do you put Jesus in the nativity then? <laughs> I mean, uh, he's not still in the manger, so, uh, but you picture him there. But babies aren't as offensive as a dead guy, right? So, um, anyway. Also, why don't we just, like, you know, uh, have pictures of rocks rolled away from a tomb, you know? Um, the cross is supposed to be the cross. So anyway, uh, that's a side point, but um, all right, catechism, memory work, and Bible memory work, sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we live sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do and husband and life, husband and wife love and honor each other. Um, so I got two things here. One, is gonna the second one is gonna lead us into our dis, uh, discussion of Joash. Uh, but the first one is that in the before before the last update to the translation of the Catechism, so they've updated the translation to uh, the small Catechism, and by they I mean uh, CPH Concordia Publishing House that publishes the books that we use in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, for the most part. Um, they update, The last time they updated the translation for the small catechism was in the 90s. I want to say 91 or 93. I can't remember. Um, I think that's right. Or maybe it was like 86. Anyway, um, it was like in the 80s or 90s when they last updated the translation. But before that, um, some of you may grew up with a different translation from this um of the of the sixth commandment and the because the one before that was like in the 50s was the the translation prior to that so a lot of people that are still in the church today um if they were confirmed you know before 1980 or 1990 whatever it was um had memorized the different catechism and the old translation said we should fear and love god so that we lead a chaste life does anyone remember that yeah okay good so um i like that translation better because chaste is a much broader word than sexually pure so sexually pure is obviously just talking about that realm of purity right um is sexually is a very narrow adjective or at uh yeah adjective um Chaste is oftentimes, in, in also an older Bible translation, it's used to translate one of the fruits of the Spirit. Does anyone know which one? Self-control. So chastity is uh, obviously is has somewhat of the connotation of sexual um, sins, but it it is broader in the sense that the the root 
word or the root definition of chastity has has more to do with self-control. Um, and when it comes, so when it comes to when it when it comes to the sixth commandment and specifically sexual purity, self-control obviously applies, right? The idea of chastity is that um, no matter kind of where you are in life, if you're not married, then you can control yourself until you get married, right? And avoid uh, some of the temptations to, you know, sex before marriage or, uh, you know, nowadays um, people uh, living together before they're married um, is very, very popular. And, um, but if you're, if you're, if you are married, then you can uh, control yourself from going outside of your marriage in sexual ways. Um, no matter, no matter, you know, if you're married or not, you can control yourself from from lust and and other temptations. So this idea of self-control is that it's it's much more broad. And even within the idea of sexual purity, it's not just limited to husbands and wives. It's limited to your whole life. And I, but it's not just about, um, so I think self-control is a great way to talk about lots of different kinds of sins that come up that are similar to sexual sins in the sense that they are very fleshly or bodily. Um, so something like gluttony is something that I think really falls, in some ways it falls under the fifth commandment because it's about taking care of your body. It also falls under the sixth commandment because it has to do with um, controlling these fleshly passions, right? So in the same way that someone might be, um, or alcoholism. So in the same way that someone might be, uh, or the Bible, the Bible doesn't use the term alcoholism, it uses the term drunkenness. Um, in the same way that someone might be tempted to uh in a moment of passion, commit a sexual sin, that's the exact same kind of way that a sin happens when it comes to, to gluttony or, or to um, drunkenness. That in a, in a moment of fleshly desire and passion, people pursue something way past the point of when it should, where, it should be go, where it should be pursued, right? So within bounds, um, these things are all good, right? So sexual sexuality is good with within the bounds of marriage. Food is really good within the bounds of ordered creation and when it's in the balance of fasting and feasting and um, when we're thanking God for what he's provided for us. Uh, alcohol can be good if used in moderation. Um, it makes glad the heart of men, Jesus says. But uh, all of these things need to be self-controlled. And that's I think that's really the root of the, the sixth commandment. Paul says, when he talks about the body, he says, uh, he talks about self-control. And he's, he's talking about, he talks about athletes. He says, don't you know that um, an athlete disciplines his body in all things, therefore I keep my body under control? That lest I also be disqualified. Um, and if you think about that image of what is an, how does an athlete train, right? The athlete doesn't just 
uh, like a professional athlete doesn't just care about what he's doing in the two hours of he goes to practice on a given day. He's also watching what he eats. He's also um, taking care of his body. He's making sure he's getting enough sleep. He's doing all these things, right, uh, to be self-controlled in his entire life. And so I think that overarching idea of being able to control our passions and be self-controlled, um, that's in some ways really what the Sixth Commandment is driving at. Okay, now the Bible memory work is going to lead us into uh, Joash. So I started to talk about this last week, and I, I can't remember exactly how far I got. Um, I know the choir had to, to jump out at one point. Um, but in the story of Joash... So we can go ahead and kind of open that up. Second Chronicles 24 is where we're at. So remember, Joash uh, became king uh, via the coup that the rightful coup that Jehoiada the priest ran against Athaliah. Um, Athaliah. I think that's how I said all I wanted to say it. I can't ever remember what I decided I wanted to say it. I say it different every time. Athaliah. I think that's what we're going to go with. Um, and jo- so Joash becomes king. And as Joash is raised uh, up to be king, he was seven years old when he became king. At a certain point, he becomes old enough to get married. And Jehoiada provides for him two wives. So that's verse three. Jehoiada took two wives for him. Um, were you were most of you here when I started talking about this last week? Okay. So it just as as way of review, polygamy is not ever approved by God in the Bible. Um, there are plenty of instances of polygamy in the Old Testament. What I think polygamy is is an early acceptance of paganism in the culture of Israel and Judah. So what is the problem of the Old Testament? The problem of the Old Testament, generally speaking, is that Israel and Judah want to be like the pagans. Um, they, they go astray, and they always go astray by worshiping false pagan idols or making for the, trying to be like the pagans in all these different ways. So even the fact that they now have a monarchy and have kings um, is originally not the design. It's because they wanted to be like the pagan nations that... Um, they ended up with kings. Now, God works good through that and grants them a king and everything. But then if we look at those kings, right, what is the downfall of Solomon, of David and of, or of Saul, David and Solomon's Their empires? Their, Their wives, right. David's biggest downfall in his life is Bathsheba, right? That That's where a lot of things went wrong for him. Um, Solomon, uh, it's having too many wives, too many concubines, that he ends up giving it and there he ends up marrying them from outside the uh, kingdom, especially to um, fall, falls into their false religions, right? So um, polygamy is incredibly dangerous for these, these men and it, it ends up being bad for the empire. It never turns out well. What I think you can see here in Jehoiada only giving Joash two wives is that it's an extreme limitation of what was going on before. Um, he's 
bringing it, he's getting things back under rain, right? Um, he's reining things back in from where they where they were. And um, so just in case anyone kind of doubted if, or maybe not doubted, but sometimes people will say, well, the Bible, the Bible doesn't um, disallow polygamy or in, uh, in the Old Testament, you know, there's all these faithful men had, had multiple wives. And that's that uh, there's a part of that that's true. There are faithful men in the Old Testament that partook in this bad practice, right? Well, that just shows that we're all sinners, right? And we all, we all need forgiveness. But um, I do want to just draw your attention to Matthew 19 because I think this is very important that when Jesus wants to define marriage, so the context of this is that people are trying to trap him on the issue of divorce. And he says, well, Moses, they say, well, Moses allowed, allowed divorce. Um, and he said, if you want to know, like, yeah, that's fine. Moses allowed divorce. He said, because of the hardness of your heart. Um, and I think that's where, where polygamy was so ingrained in the culture of Israel and Judah that it was basically allowed uh, to a certain extent, um, so that they could continue to function, um, and out of uh, because of the hardness of their heart, like it, they they went on doing it, but it, that doesn't that doesn't excuse it. That doesn't mean that it was right. But he said, Jesus says, if you want to know what the Lord teaches, um, go back to what did God say in the beginning, and he goes back to Genesis. One and two. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, that's the teaching of Jesus. And you can see there, what's the definition of marriage? One man, one woman. One woman and they are two people, only two, not three, not four, not five, only two. And they become one flesh, and they're not separated from each other, right? Um, which would include things like adultery, where the man would be going off, um, going other places. The other thing we said about that is that you can see, um, as by way of contemporary application, that in our culture today, what we're doing is just going back to paganism. Um, the idea of what they're calling polyamory is really just a revamped version of pagan polygamy, right? Now, pagan polygamy was um, maybe, this sounds bad, but maybe even a little bit better because at least it was limited in its scope that it was one man who could provide for many wives, whereas this modern-day polyamory is even worse and that it's as many husbands and as many wives and in whatever combination. And if some of them are homosexual, um, then that's great too, or bisexual or uh, transgender or whatever, then it's all good. Everything just, just everyone is interchangeable and just however many people want to be together in some kind of group of love, that's all okay, right? So I think that's in some ways worse just because it's, yeah, whatever kind of weird commune, and um, but but it's basically paganism, 
right? We're just reverting back to paganism. So uh, the same kinds of things that child sacrifice, I mean, that's what abortion is. Everything that's basically pagan in nature, um, we're just reverting back to now as as our culture becomes more and more or less and less Christian and more and more what we maybe we could call it like neo-pagan. I've heard that term before. It's like the new paganism. So um, and it's it is very spiritual and religious in nature, too. The uh, I didn't even know this, but um, we were over at uh, Side Street Burgers yesterday in Olive Branch on, on 178. And um, there's a shop in that little strip right there that's called Lucky Luna. Is that what it was called? Lucky Luna. Um, we didn't uh, we didn't know what it was. And then, um, I don't know, Rebecca looked it up or something anyway, or saw a sign on the window. But it turns out it's a witch shop. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even, yeah. Right in Olive Branch. And, and conservative Olive Branch, Mississippi, you know. You know. We vote red here, you know, it's all good, right? No, in in Olive Branch, Mississippi, mm. there is a witch store. But who allows that to... You can't discriminate. No, you can't. They can do what they want. Yeah. And they're in a, it's an out-of-the-way spot. Most yeah. people don't go over there. Yeah. yeah. I know. Yeah, I think I saw it when we were at... Yeah, it's a uh, metaphysical supply store. Uh-huh. Oh. And they, uh, they read your tarot cards and... Oh. Uh, she advertises herself as a a clairsentient, which I I think is related to like clairvoyance. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, they yeah. So right right in Olive Branch, there's a there's probably a market for witch witches and witch witchcraft. What's that? Yeah, tarot cards. Yeah. yeah, she'll do whatever you want, you know. <laughs> It's uh, it's probably not popular enough now that she can specialize. So, but uh, yeah. So um, yeah, it's really bad. It's really bad. So um, yeah, it's just paganism. That's that's what we're facing now. So the it's important to know. Yeah, like it 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 really is that um, we're not insulated from this, right? Yeah. Anywhere I work, Kirby Witten. Yeah. Around the corner. Yeah. Houses. There's at least one or two in there. On the island, there's a ton of them. Yeah. Yeah. They're all. They're all over. Summer's Lights Station. There's one. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're everywhere. Yeah. So you can't you can't avoid this stuff. Um. So you need to be on the watch. You you really do. Um. And we can't. It. I mean, we can't just make it 1950 again either. You know, we gotta. We we need to talk about this stuff and. Uh, nice yeah right. There you go. Yeah, so that would all be nice, except the problem is there's a witch store in Olive Branch. So. Um, all right. So anyway, so that's the uh, polygamy thing. I I wanted to talk about that again because the sixth commandment came up. So. Um, all right, so the next thing that happens is Joash uh, rebuilds the temple. And we talked about that some last week as well, that um, the way that he does that is they take a collection and they basically renew the tithe. They say, do what Moses taught you and bring in the tithe. 
um, so 10%. And they do that. And uh, the point we made last week is that when they do that, when they bring in the tithe, um, everyone is bringing it in joyfully, right? No one's no one's complaining. Uh, they did this day by day, and they gathered money in abundance. And um, it doesn't seem like they really had any problems because of this either in, in the life of Judah. In fact, life is getting better, right? They're taking down other idols and temples, and they're... Um, that the they're they're building up the they're restoring the temple, um, Solomon's temple that that had had fallen into disrepair, and um, when they bring uh, the, these this tithe in, um, they are they are doing so joyfully, and that reminds us right that that God loves a joyful giver, um, and it the the point I was making last week is on the topic of stewardship. That the thing that we always have to deal with when it comes to stewardship in the modern church is, and the 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 New Testament church is that if anyone ever brings up a certain percentage, um, you're risking being accused of legalism, right? That if the um, and I so I'm not afraid of this. I you guys know me. I say what what I think, and you know. So be it. But um, I've ha- I've had these arguments with other pastors. Is is uh, are we allowed to talk about ten percent? You know, because that could indicate that we don't want people to fall into the, this idea of legalism that someone feels like they have to do something to to be saved or to be a part of the church or whatever. Um, what I what I would say to that is, well, one, I always teach. No, you don't have to give 10%. Um, and and if you don't give 10%, that's that's completely fine. We're not bound by that law. That is an Old Testament ritual law. We're not bound by that anymore. Sure. But when I do teach on stewardship, I say, well, what's the standard biblical amount that we can learn from is 10%. And then if you look at the New Testament, when the New Testament authors take up uh, this this topic or other topics of things like these ritual laws, so look at the uh, Sabbath, for instance, um, what do they do? Do they do less because they don't have to anymore? Or do they do more because now they're free in the gospel? Well, they actually do more, right? So the New Testament Christians, yeah, they're not required to worship on the Sabbath. That's why they change it from Saturday to Sunday. But the New Testament early Christians, they worship. They didn't start. They they, they didn't say, oh, we only have, um, we're not under the law of the Sabbath. We can worship twice a month now instead of once a week. They started worshiping multiple days a week, <laughs> right? And then when um, in Acts two, um, they didn't say, oh, we don't have to give 10%, we'll only give 2%. They gave everything. They actually gave 100%, right? Um, now, I'm not saying we should all give 100% like they did in Acts 2, but um, my, my point is the, the New Testament does not think in terms when it comes to things like stewardship of legalism because the point of our freedom as a Christian 
is not freedom to sin more or freedom to do less. Our freedom as a Christian is to love more and freedom to do more. And so um, you can see this already kind of in Second Chronicles 24 when, yeah, they're, they're more or less required to give 10% by order of the king. But no one's no one thinks of it that way, right? No one no one's thinking. Um, none of the faithful people who are coming to bring their ten percent offering to to help rebuild the temple. No one's thinking like, oh, this is such a waste of money. Oh, I wish I could like only give a little bit less uh, so that I could you know save up for that boat I want or whatever. Like no no one's thinking that. I, I mean maybe they are. I don't I don't know. I wasn't there, but. It's not recorded in the biblical text, right? It seems like um, the gifts are just overflowing and they have more money than they know what to do with, right? So, um, and anyway, so that, my point is God loves a cheerful giver. That's that's my point. Um, and that's not, of course, it's not meant to be legalistic. And I would never say that if someone couldn't pay their bills, you know, because they're giving 10%, uh, then that, that that was right. Like, obviously... Um, we have these different vocations and we need to take care of ourselves and our families and we need to be able to put food on the table and everything like that. Um, but there's nothing wrong with trying to do the best we can for God and for his house, right? So um, that is what that is. All right, so then, I, I, of course, I didn't really get any further than I was last week. Um, this well, we is how it goes, yeah. Um, I get on these topics and I, I can't stop. Um, let me, uh, I don't even know where my sheet is here. I didn't, didn't even have to pull up my notes yet. Um, yeah, I can, I can wrap up Joash really quick. So I got, I got like one, one or two minutes probably. Okay. So, um, if, if you're still in Second Chronicles 24 in verse, uh, 15 and 16, um, so Jehoiada grew old and was full of days, and he died. He was 130 years old when he died. This is notable because um, this is past the time where people were living a long time in the Old Testament, right? Even by the time of Moses, Moses says people live by reason of strength 70 or 80, right? So people aren't living that long anymore. Jehoiada gets to live a long time, and my point about that um, is that he was very, very faithful, and this is a blessing. I mean, it is specifically a blessing that Jehoiada receives for his faithfulness. And, of course, we don't want to turn into Joel Osteen and, and say, you know, um, oh, if you're just faithful enough, then God will grant you all these earthly blessings. He'll give you um, tons and tons of money or whatever. But... Um, it is biblical to say that there are earthly blessings for following God's law, and there are earthly consequences for breaking God's law. So sometimes this is just natural because God's law is built into creation. So um, Paul says about people who practice homosexuality in Romans 1 that they receive a punishment in, in themselves from that practice, which is true if you look at diseases and things that are connected to people who practice homosexuality, right? So there are natural consequences to going against God's creation. Likewise, when you go along with God's creation, 
So like earlier, we talked about gluttony a little bit. If someone or drunk or drunkenness, if someone is a drunkard and a glutton, they're going to die earlier. Right. But if someone is not, if someone has self-control, then they will generally live longer. Right. So so some of these things are just natural built into creation. Um, and, and even here, I would go as far as to say with Jehida, I don't know exactly why he lived to be old, but the point is God did bless him and he blessed his life and he allowed him to live long because it was according to his will. Now, the flip side to all this is, of course, sometimes we are sent suffering and sometimes we are sent um, testing by God and sometimes we are tempted by the devil even when we're faithful. So there's no... Um, and that's the word of the cross, right? That's what we were talking about at, at the beginning class, that the word of the cross is, is foolishness uh, to the Gentiles, that sometimes what God does doesn't make any sense, right, to the, to the outward eye. But sometimes he does give blessings, and this is this uh, for following his law. So this is one of them, right? So we can't make promises like, like, like I said, like prosperity gospel, Joel Steen. We can't say, oh, God's going to bless your bank account if you just pray more or something like that. Um, that's not how it works. But as we are sanctified and as we strive to follow his law, sometimes he sends us blessings for that, right? He does He does bless his church, right? And sometimes he punishes uh, people for, for their disobedience, right? So um, you can see that all over in, in the Old Testament. Uh, finally, uh, the last thing that happens in Joash's life is that after Jehoiada dies, he falls back into bad company. And he ends wicked. So Joash did all these great things, and then his mentor dies, and he falls back into bad company. Um, this is verses like 17 through 19. Uh, the leaders of Judah came and bowed to the king, and the king listened to them. And then they went and they served wooden images and idols, and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem. So things can change quickly. And this is really just the importance of good company, right? We, we, we've been talking about this with Joash. Whenever, um, and with Athaliah with and with all of that, whenever the kings fall into bad company, they become unfaithful. Whenever they have the good company of the prophets and the priests, then they remain faithful. And so uh, that's just the final exhortation to, to keep good company. All right. Any final questions or comments on that? All right. Let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all your good gifts. We pray that this Lent you would keep Jesus before our eyes, help us to see the cross and his passion, and to know the right nature of sin, that we would repent of our own sin and receive the forgiveness that Jesus won for us on the cross by substitutionary atonement. We pray also, dear Heavenly Father, that you would bless our worship today. Help us to worship you with right worship to hear your word rightly, and to have fellowship with one another. Keep us faithful to your word in these days of paganism. Keep us faithful to you all the days of our lives, that we would be blessed by you and receive from you our sorrows as well as our joys. We pray all of this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.